So this is the seventh week in our indispensable wisdom series from the scriptures. And uh, I've heard some good things about this series. Uh, not the preach. I mean, the preaching's all right, right? But I've heard some good things about the way people are processing and, and thinking through these stories and the wisdom that they highlight from God's word. Today, we are in the final one, as I said, number seven. And we are talking about the importance in our lives of maintaining healthy relationships. Um, Rebecca has mentioned before, and I'm, I'm, I, those of you who have been around for a while will know that Rebecca and I are not good at taking care of plants. Apparently, they need water, weeding, some manure of some sort. I don't know. It just seems we don't have enough time, really, I don't think, or, or we don't know how. I mean, it's, I mean, it's lucky enough that our kids get taken care of, right? And uh, we did once have a really good plant. Um, it was in a pot plant about this round. It was incredible. And it grew for a couple of years on our porch, our front porch at one of our previous core. And um, one night we had a senior leaders meeting and... Um, one of the senior leaders came around. Now, this is a person who'd been to our house at least once a week for two years. And um, just this one time, they said, look, why have you got that growing there? I said, oh, it's a nice plant. They said, it's a weed. <laughs> I don't know. It looked nice. It was easy. But it was a weed. Truly taking care of things takes some time and relationships are no different. We did, we did for a time decide that we would try um, a fake plant or two. Have you ever had fake plants in your house? We have a lot of fake plants here, right? Because they're easy, you just dust them. But they're not the same. They don't smell the same. They don't grow, they don't flower. Well, these ones do permanently. But they never grow fruit. Nothing ever kind of develops with them that is not alive and you can really tell it and so we kind of don't like fake plants either and you know what relationships are someone like that as well facebook friendships for instance often come across as fake relationships they look really good but really it's just about appearance and there's not a lot of depth to many of our facebook friendships well, relationships are important. They take some time. They take weeding. They take looking after. They take giving water. And uh, it's important to make real relationships work. Um, if you've not read it already, not now, but uh, I suggest you read the, the front page of the newsletter um, and if not the Facebook comment that uh, we wrote this week. It will give you some context around the importance of relationships in this age of loneliness that we currently exist in. So we are talking about the importance of maintaining healthy relationships, of taking care, putting in the effort, because sometimes relationships go sour. Ever had that experience? Where something fractures from time to time in relationships, whether it be between a husband and wife or partners or between parents and children or between children or between family members or between church members. Relationships can go wrong and they do take time and they do take effort to repair 
from time and restore from time to time. Well, the woman in the Bible today is Abigail and we're looking at her story and she teaches us a lot of interesting things about the wisdom of building healthy relationships. Abigail married a man named Nabal, who was a simple sheep herder, or a simple sheep herder, if you like. Ah, well, but, 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 but he became famous. His gradual success morphed him into something else. How many times have you seen that? When someone suddenly becomes super wealthy or super, super uh, powerful, their character seems to change. And her story unfolds in 1 Samuel chapter 25. Um, and we are not going to read the whole story, but here's um, the verse to begin with. The man's name was Nabal and his wife's name was Abigail. She was intelligent and beautiful in appearance, but the man was harsh and evil. All right, so that sets the story of Abigail and Nabal. Now, Abigail and Nabal lived in the desert and they were rich. They had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats and all the staff that it took to look after that, that wealth. Also living in the desert is a young David. David, who is going to grow up to be king, we know. But at the moment, he's on the run. He's on the run from King Saul, who is going mad with envy over David's success. And he's trying to kill David. So David's run away to live in the desert, David's, which is good. David's not alone. David has 600 friends with him, heavily armed and well-trained soldiers. Now, in addition, in the desert also lives some not very nice people. You could say the desert was a wretched hive of scum and villainy. There were thieves and rustlers and sand pirates and scavengers. And oftentimes, what would happen is Nabal's uh, shepherd, pe- shepherds and his goat herds. Yeah, that's right. Got that from the sound of music. You have goat herds, don't you? Yeah, right. So they would be there and they would come under attack from the the scum. And David and his men, being the righteous guys that they are, would fight off the thieves and the rustlers. And in that way, they worked out this really nice kind of relationship. Then it came to sheep shearing time. Sheep shearing time in the ancient world was something very akin to what we used to celebrate as Harvest Festival. You know, it's the end of the year where the harvest comes in. The sheep are shorn and sold and all the prophets come rolling in. It is the great celebration of the end of the commercial year. It's feasts and fairs and celebratory carnivals and things like that. And Nabal, being the rich landowner, would organize one of these great festival weekends. And... Along to the festival weekend, David sends 10 of his men and he says, look, go and see Nabal and ask him for some of the leftover food so that we might have something to share as well. And, you know, he expected, I would, I mean, you would expect, wouldn't you, Nabal to be overjoyed to share some of the great year that he's had. But instead, Nabal is an idiot. And he antagonizes David's men. He treats them with humiliation. He shaves off half their beards and sends them back to David as a joke. He's not a clever man, really. 
He truly is an idiot. You don't insult 600 armed and trained men led by a giant killer unless you're an idiot. But such is true. Such is what happened. So David says to 400, he's many leaves 200 behind. He says, 400, you guys like suit up? We're going to go take care of this. And this is what he says in verse 22. May God do his worst to me if Nabal and every cur and his misbegotten brood aren't dead meat by morning. He is seriously mad. And he's going to kill every single member of Nabal's house. Well, one of Nabal's uh, servant saw what happened and he went to Nabal's wife, Abigail. And we pick up the story here in verse 18. Abigail flew into action. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep dressed out ready for cooking, a bushel of roasted grain, 100 raisin cakes, 200 fig cakes, and she had it all loaded onto some donkeys. As soon as Abigail saw David, she got off her donkey, fell on her knees at his feet, her face to the ground in homage, saying, My master, let me take the blame. Let me speak to you. Listen to what I have to say. Don't dwell on what the brute Nabal did. He acts out of the meaning of his name, Nabal. Fool. Foolishness oozes from him. Now, there's an excellent question there as to why someone would marry someone named Fool. Don't you think? In actual fact, the names in the scriptures are often changed to reflect the person's character for whom the story is told. Well, Abigail's humility softens David's heart. She answered for the foolishness of her husband. And I can see why a few months ago when we were planning out this series, Rebecca decided that it would be best for me to give this message. David said, blessed be God, the God of Israel. He sent you to meet me and blessed be your good sense. Bless you for keeping me from murder and taking charge of looking out for me. It was a close call as God lives, the God of Israel who kept me from hurting you. If you had not come as quickly as you did, stopping me in my tracks by morning, there would be nothing left of Nabal but dead meat. Dead meat seems to be a very favorite phrase of the message translator, Eugene Peterson, doesn't it? Anyway. Then David accepted the gift she brought him and said, return home in peace. I've heard what you've said and I'll do what you've asked. Okay. What does this teach us about relationships and particularly offenses? Those things that exist to break or fracture or burn relationships are the offenses, aren't they? First of all, I think it shows for us that offenses are unavoidable. There are plenty of opportunities in life to get offended, aren't there? Well, I'm hearing a lot of mooing. You get passed over for a promotion. You get cut off in traffic. You, you don't get consulted on something you thought you should have been. You get rejected on a date. You're not invited to a lunch. You get told you did the wrong thing. You don't get rung on your birthday by a loved one. Or you don't think you were thanked appropriately enough for something that you did for someone. I'm sure every single one of us has that feeling where we would just want to grab 400 of our heavily armed mates, march on someone's house, ready to murder the lot. 
see? Your chuckles tell you away, give you away. Offenses are everywhere. They're unavoidable. But offenses are destructive. Look, the way I think about it is this. In our physical bodies, we, we face viruses and bacteria and illnesses all the time. And our bodies just continually fight them off. But, 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 and, and if we do get sick, we usually don't get sick for too long. But if we're not healthy, if our bodies are filled with anxieties, suspicions, unresolved guilt, unsettled stress, then we, we do find ourselves more susceptible to physical illness. Every virus that seems to float by within a kilometre, we seem to get. Have you ever been through that kind of time? Our resilience fades and replaces, is replaced with vulnerability to illness. And I want to tell you that, that churches and families and relationships and communities are all living systems in much the same way as your physical body. The existence of, of low-grade discontent and the presence of unresolved offences impairs the health of individuals and relationships. Nothing can move forward until anger is diffused and offences are remedied. The Scriptures tell us that God cannot, it says cannot, it says cannot, cannot begin the healing process until we reprioritize healthy relationships. Now, there are two scenarios, aren't there, when, when we're talking about relationship breakdown or relationship stress, isn't there? There are two scenarios. The first scenario is when you're wrong. Yeah? When you've done the wrong thing. You committed a sin. And it affects you. Uh, David later on writes in Psalm 32, When I was silent about my sin, my body wasted away as with the feverish heat of summer, for thy hand was heavy upon me. See, see when, we, when we commit evil against someone else, it does plague us. And I think David, on the march, after he'd been confronted by Abigail, he comes to the point where he realizes, Oh, I almost committed murder. He, he, could have, he saw that that would have weighed on him. Sin itself manifests in physical symptoms as well as relational consequences. Look what Paul writes in Romans 6.23, that the consequences of sin is death, or, or in the older translations you might have read, the wages of sin is death. He's not talking about physical death. You're all going to get that anyway. He's talking about relational death, social death. The death of marriages, families, finances, churches, all those things. And, and for those times when we're in the wrong, the Bible provides very simple guidance. Through repentance, we take a, light, a leaf from the life of Abigail. When we stop, we realize the mistake we've made, the effect it's had on others, and we truly seek to restore the relationship with sacrifice and humility. And when we do that in the name of Jesus, the relationship is avoid the, the, the death of the relationship is avoided. The wages of sin are paid, and healing and restoration can begin. 
But what about the other scenario? The, the, the scenario when you are right. When you are right. This is actually quite dangerous. It's, it's relatively simple. Like, it's straightforward. It's not easy, but it's straightforward what you need to do when you recognize that you're in the wrong. That's fine. But when you're in the right, it can be dangerous. You can feel justified in grabbing 400 of your mates. You can attack others. You can use your rightness to endorse conflict. After all, you're right. Someone once said, and I can't tell you who because there's a billion different people that are attributed to this quote, but it's this, being on the wrong side of the cross is humbling. Being on the right side of the cross is dangerous. Often I see people who are in the right use their rightness as a whipping post or a podium to denounce and condemn others. All in the name of revenge because they are right. The problem is for me, and for all of us I guess, is that Jesus, the author and the perfect example of our faith, didn't use his, his, his podium to condemn those who were responsible for his torture. Instead, he prayed for their forgiveness. It's a little bit frustrating, I will admit. So offences are unavoidable. Offences are destructive, whether we are right or whether we are wrong. They drive the wedge and ruin community. But also, offences are sticky. See, we talk about taking offence, don't we? It means be willing to capture another person's offence and hold on to it. Sin comes streaming through our lives all the time. It can come and it can go. We can stay unaffected. But if we take offence, when we choose to hold on to it, and I will admit, the closer you are to the person who sins against you, the more likely you are to take offence, aren't you? If it's someone you don't care about, you can just let it fly. Except if they cut you off in traffic. I have real trouble. But generally, you know, it's those people who are closer to you. In community, in church, in families, in marriages. That you can take offence from. Well, here's... What Jesus says, something very interesting in John chapter 20. He says, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. Great. But if you retain the sins of any, they've been retained. If you choose to take offense, whether it's yours or someone else's, then heaven says those sins will be retained by you. Because you're the one holding on to them. This continues the fire that burns between people in broken relationships. It clouds the atmosphere of community 
and hinders the flow of grace in marriages, churches, and families. So, what do we do? Well, as soon as Abigail discovered that her husband had caused such offense, she went out of her way to make it right. And Jesus says this is a good example for us. Look what he says in um, Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, his most famous message. He says this, this is how I want you to conduct yourselves in these matters. If you enter your place of worship and about to make an offering, you suddenly remember a grudge a friend has against you, abandon your offering. Leave immediately. Go to this friend and make things right. Then and only then, come back and work things out with God. Isn't that interesting? Paul, Paul, the great teacher and writer of over half the New Testament says, don't hit back, this is in Romans chapter 12, don't hit back, discover beauty in everyone. If you've got it in you, as far as it be with you, get along with everybody. Don't insist on getting even. Oh man, that's not for you to do. I'll do the judging, says God. I'll take care of it. That is the challenge before us. And the other thing to note is, you've got to go first. Did you pick that up? You've got to go first. So far as it be to you. Sometimes I think, I'll work on my relationship after my wife gets some counselling. She's too far gone at the moment. I'll work on my relationship with my kids when they start to behave themselves, which I'm hoping should be in a few years now. I'll, I'll fix my relationship with my, with my estranged cousins when they stop being so stupid and treating me with such disrespect. The Bible doesn't quite say that. It says, you go. You be the first. You be the beginning of repairs. It has to begin with you. Abigail knew this. When Nabal foolishly lit David's fuse, Abigail took the initiative. She found David on his way. She accepted the blame, even though technically it probably wasn't hers. She asked to be the one who tries to fix things. She acknowledges the wrong and the foolishness. She acknowledges that David has the every right. She points out, she does point out that it will plague his conscience. And she asks for David's forgiveness. So the lesson here is when things aren't right in a relationship, whether you caused the issue or not, you be the one to offer the first apology. You be the one to extend the first olive branch. I wonder how often sometimes, I, I, my mind does funny things sometimes, and I wonder how often Jesus felt like in this sort of situation, you know? I wonder how often he felt like he would love to just grab 400 of his mates or 400 legions of angels with lightsabers 
and take on the world. He was slandered, betrayed. His friend and mentor was beheaded, as we read last week. He was pursued, hated, lied about, underappreciated, ignored, taken for granted, falsely accused, beaten, spat on and hung on a cross. And yet after all that, he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. It's not easy. It's not easy. We're going to reflect with a song this morning. And I want you to spend a moment right now thinking through all the relationships in your life. Relationships you have, relationships you've had, relationships where the bridges may seem to have been burning. I want you to think about the times when you're wrong, when you've burned the bridges. What is it you need to repair? What is it you need to offer? What sacrifice do you need to make? What blame do you need to talk about? I'm not saying you're always going to be best friends with people, but the bridges have to, be, have to stop burning so that God's grace flows smooth. And those times when you're right, when, you've been, when, when someone has committed a sin against you, I, I want to say go back and, and have a look at the, uh, the message we talked about, forgiveness, because I think some of the wisdom that came through from that story would be very helpful to again go through. But let's sing together, Mighty to Save. And as we sing, I want you to pray, ask God for guidance, ask God for direction. I don't know your relationships. I don't even know all of you. I don't know what, what could be broken, what needs to be fixed. Perhaps you don't know what the next step is in trying to repair a relationship. Maybe it's a time for you to step out of your comfort zone, to come and kneel before God and say, God, please help me figure this out. This is a place of prayer. Thousands have knelt here over the years. It's a place where, well, there's nothing quite magical about it, but it's a place where if we step out of our comfort zone in our seats, and we kneel before God, it just happens that God seems, we, we seem more open and hearing, able to hear God's guidance and direction. Perhaps you'd like to come and kneel as we sing this song. Or perhaps for you, you may like to ask to pray for guidance as to how to repair, fix, and build the relationships of your life. Let's sing.